The intelligence of this creature, this beautiful blood dolphin, was absolutely astonishing. It was as if he was talking to us. He would actually squeak when I talked to him. And uh, he, he would follow us wherever we went and wait for us to dive, dive with us for we searching for anything. He would put his nose in the sand and help us dig. And anything that we did, he would copy and uh, follow us back up safely again to the surface. Aquanaut. My adventures and misadventures in the early days of scuba diving off the Cornish coast. Written and read by me, James Wheeler. I want to talk now about a wonderful experience I had with nature. And uh, we heard that there was a dolphin in, in, in Mounts Bay. And uh, we used to set off on our journey out to Land's End direction, usually quite early in the mornings. And on this particular Sunday morning, we were set off, and as soon as we left the harbour, we were met by this wonderful dolphin. It was amazing. He swam next to the boat, like a dog following us on a lead, and he followed us all the way out to where we were going to dive. Well, the first dive that day was to explore the uh, terrain using our photograph echo sounder and uh, we thought we picked up some wreckage so Bob and I went over, went over together which is unusual for us to go dive together but we decided to do this that, that day probably because we wanted to have the experience with the dolphin. Well my goodness what an experience it was. I recall now every moment of it a moment in my life which I will never forget. The dolphin was with us on the surface and we, as we dived he came right alongside us and he came alongside me in particular and followed me down. He was touching me as I went down deeper and deeper. And when I got to the bottom and settled myself down to explore the seabed, he was right next to me. His nose by my hands as I was pulling myself along on the kelp seaweed. It was just astonishing. In fact, I had to stop. I stopped and put my arm around him and he looked at me with his gorgeous smiley eyes and I thought, my goodness me, this is, this is a miracle. I had never experienced anything like this before under the water. The intelligence of this creature, this beautiful dolphin, was absolutely astonishing. It was as if he was talking to us. He would actually squeak when I talked to him. So on subsequent dives, Every time we went out, we, we met that we were accompanied by this wonderful dolphin. And incidentally, we were a bit concerned because he had a nasty scar on the top of his head behind his eyes. And it was healing, okay. But it looked rather as though he'd been struck by a propeller from an outboard motor or, or a small, small engine. But he was okay. We decided to call him Beaky. And we called him that because when we surfaced, after each dive, he would come right next to me and next to Bob or Raymond. And he would be his head right out of the water. And I remember one incident, putting my arm around his head and putting my hand in his mouth with his <laughs> very quite sharp teeth, 
trusting him and he wouldn't bite me. He was so tame, he was more intelligent than a dog. It was absolutely astonishing and something which I will never forget. Also, I think um, you need to understand that Beaky must have known or recognised the, the sound of our engine or the, or the actual boat itself, because every time he went out, he was there with us. And uh, he was a, a, a longer than me. He was well over six feet long with a beautiful blue and grey uh, smooth skin. It was as smooth as silk. And uh, he, he would follow us wherever we went and wait for us to dive, dive with us. If we were searching for anything, he would put his nose in the sand and help us dig. And anything that we did, he would copy and uh, follow us back up safely again to the surface. So every time, for a very long time that summer, every time we did, we were met by Beaky as we dived. And he just became such a wonderful friend and a companion. Indeed, we felt somehow safer diving with him, as if he was protecting us from all the hazards of diving under the sea. I don't know what he thought we were, whether he thought we were human or some other animal from the sea, but uh, it was a wonderful experience, and uh, I think other divers have probably experienced this since. But these were the early days, and, uh, and of course since then now there's lots of dolphin stories. But this was an early one, and my first experience in my life of diving with such a beautiful creature, something I will never forget. I mentioned in an earlier podcast that uh, we realised that if we were to be more successful at salvaging, we needed to get uh, handy with explosives. Um, this was a big decision, but we decided to go ahead with it. And um, the next thing we had to find out was how to train up for explosives. Well, I'll cut a long story short, we found that there were there was a company in, in Fort Bavisand in, in Plymouth that did, I think, subcontract training for the Royal Navy or something for that order on the underwater explosives. So we inquired about it. And it turned out that the whole three-day program uh, means going to Plymouth and training up. But it was very expensive. So we decided not for all three of us to go, but the lead diver, Bob, who's clearly the most experienced and accomplished diver, to, he would follow the course and we would learn from him afterwards. So we did this and um, Bob went off on the training program in Fort Bovis and in Plymouth and came back with all the information that we needed. Before talking about some of the basic training we did, uh, I, I need to mention the types of explosives that uh, Bob was, was learning and we were learning with. There were basically uh, four kinds of explosives that we were going to be using. The first one was dynamite and that came in sticks um, six or seven inches long, wrapped in a, a yellow greaseproof paper, and uh, they came uh, in a bundle ready to be used um, whenever. Secondly, we had Semtex, a black explosive. It looks rather like uh, 
black dark chocolate, in fact. And it came in a plastic bag. And uh, that was the, the, the Semtex we had. The other one, the third one, was Cortex. Now, Cortex, to give you the best description, is like a plastic clothesline wire with a flash dynamite fuse running through the core of it. So it was a flash uh, fuse dynamite, if you like, which would be wrapped around um, pieces of metal, the cut metal in half, in a very effective way. And uh, the detonators, which were the detonators to set off these explosives, came in a small singular uh, steel tube with a flattened end and a fuse wire sticking out, which we had to connect to a wire to blow it up. So that's the kind of explosives that we were dealing with. And uh, I must say that uh, it turned out that from Bob's experience at Plymouth that the Semtex, the black explosive, which I uh, described to you, was far more potent and more powerful than the dynamite. I don't know why, but it was, and we certainly found that out from our own experience. Incidentally, um, I need to mention at this point in time that uh, the problems with Ireland were going on with the IRA, bombing, etc. And uh, consequently, we, we, to get our explosive license, we were limited to how much we could buy because of the problems with Ireland. So I think we were limited to about £20 a month uh, in weight. So that, that wasn't a lot, but enough probably for what we needed. So there were some kind of restrictions. And to get the license, of course, we couldn't have done it unless one of us had done the, the training uh, in a professional way. So that was the, the type of explosive that we used. Of course, now the time came that we needed to handle these explosives, and Bob trained us up quite well. I must say there's a funny part to it, because the, we learned that the dynamite sticks, which were yellow, I told you, about six or seven inches long, bubbles would form, and we kept it, by the way, in a safe iron box, away from the engine, away from the electrics of the boat, in case it could went off by, by mistake. But when we took the sticks out, they were, they were, they were covered with bubbles, uh, coming out from the from the greaseproof paper, and we were quite funny. We discovered that you could run your finger and thumb along the the stick of dynamite, stick your hand in the air and flick flick your fingers, and it would it would go off in a big puff of smoke with a slight little bang. So that was something we learned <laughs> about dynamite. It was quite uh, quite tricky. Anyway, the time came when we thought we might come to to use dynamite. And on this particular day. We went um, looking for wrecks as usual. We found a wreck. I don't know to this day which one it was because we dived on so many wrecks. And uh, I know what we did when we went down. We were down, but down between 45 and 50 feet, uh, quite in close to the shore. And by sheer luck, we found a huge iron, co uh, sorry, brass cogwheel. It was iron, I wouldn't have touched it. <laughs> But it was brass, phosphor, bronze, cogwheel. I would say it was about a metre high and uh, about 
I would say, 10 or 12 inches in, in thickness. So it was a huge piece of valuable metal. And the only problem was it was jammed between two rocks. You wouldn't possibly be able to move it. So here was our opportunity to plant explosives underneath the, the cogwheel and blow it free. So that was our first attempt. Well, what went down, first of all, um, to look at the situation and, and, and evaluate uh, what approach we should take. Then he came back up and said, well, I'll take down some, some, some dynamite. And I think, I can't remember exactly, but I think he took two, two or three sticks of dynamite down with him. I was going to go down um, uh, with the detonator and the coil called the wire fuse wire at the same time. It was at this point that I shouted to Bob and said, you can't do that, Bob. You could blow yourself up. The detonator needs to go down separate from the dynamite and the fuse wire. So I'll follow you down. So Bob went down with the dynamite. And uh, the problem came now that I had to uncoil the fuse wire in a roll as I went down. So I needed two hands. So I had little choice but to put the detonator in my mouth between my teeth. And so I died with the detonator in my teeth, not realising that if it went off, it would probably blow my head apart. Anyway, that's something you learn as you go along. <laughs> and uh, so Bob went down, fixed the dynamite beneath the sand, underneath this cogwheel between these two rocks, and then pushed the detonator into the dynamite, and then twisted the fuse wire around the end of the detonator wire, fuse wire, and I went to the surface, unrolling the fuse wire up to the surface to pass to the boat, to Raymond and the boat, who would then, of course, at the right time, get the two ends of the fuse wire, touch the battery on the boat, and blow it up. Well, this was fine, um, all, all in theory, but what happened was um, uh, we we thought we would... We would drift back. We could drift back far enough, so we let go the anchor, a long length of anchor rope, with the view of the aquanaut drifting back further away from the explosive. But to our horror, this didn't happen. But we didn't know that till after the explosion. So Bob got out of the water, climbed up the ladder, and I was in the in the in the water still, clinging onto the ladder. And suddenly we thought that. Uh, as we were far enough away, we could blow it up. But I don't know if Raymond to this day knew that I was still in the water, because up it went with a massive explosion. And uh, my goodness, uh, I don't think I'll be the same again. It blew me right underneath the keel of Aquanaut and up the other side and stunned me. My ears were ringing, and I realised then that the uh, explosive was not far away from beneath me. Now, how did this happen? Well, unfortunately, when we loosened the anchor, unwound the anchor for the tension of Aquanaut drifting back further away from where the explosive charge was set, the anchor had wound itself the idling propeller at the back of the boat. So the propeller was winding up the anchor rope and the boat never moved anywhere. And that was why I was still almost directly above the explosive. And oh my goodness, it really shook me up. And a lesson we learnt, never to do that again. So that was our first experience. However, um, the uh, disappointment came when we waited for about 
half an hour or so for the water to clear after using the dynamite. And Bob and I went down again and uh, got to the place where the cogwheel was. And all we found was a complete pile of brass filings. We'd used so much dynamite that it completely disintegrated the entire cogwheel. It was like putting your hands to a pile of gold dust. And that was all that was left. So we realised from that first experience that we used too much dynamite. <laughs> so much for novices. And that's what we certainly were. And we never made that mistake again. But, you know, it was a, it was a, an attempt to see what we could do. And, uh, of course, it failed. We should have used that about only half a stick of dynamite. We might have moved, moved, the, moved the, the cogwheel. But we used far too much. And that was a learning curve for us. Oh, incidentally, I, I should mention that Aunt Vicky did follow us out that day, but disappeared about halfway out across the bay. So uh, I want to make a, a clear message to you all that we would never have used explosive if Beaky was with us and in the area. And we made sure that he wasn't with us that day. And in future episodes when we use explosive, of course, I'll need to mention that... Uh, if Beaky was around, he would not have used it. But, uh, so rest assured, Beaky was safe. Our next uh, experience using dynamite um, was not far from where we found the other wreck I explained to you just a moment ago. It was a bit further towards Land's End. And again, we have, we have no idea of the name of the ship, but uh, there was an awful lot of wreckage there and we dived on it before. We never knew what, the, what what ship it was. And we found it again using the paragraph, got close inshore and realised that um, the further we swam inshore, Bob and I went in together this time, and the, swamp, the further we swam inshore, the shallower it got, of course, and the more precious metal uh, we found. And then, to our delight, we found a huge chunk of bronze and copper um, right inshore on the rocks in only six to seven feet of water and it was such a calm day with, with not much ground sea so we were very fortunate to be able to find this but uh, the problem was it was so heavy we'd have to break it all up with explosives so how do we do this well we planned to uh, plant explosive in a strategic place so that we wouldn't do so much damage as we did in our first attempt. And um, then all the fun started. Um, we were about to go swim back to Aquanaut, which was anchored off further off. And by the way, we had the inflatable dinghy, which we used to come in to pick up metal if it was close to shore. But um, we went back to Aquanaut and decided to bring Aquanaut a bit closer in. And as we were doing this, we, we suddenly realised that we saw a mermaid on the rocks. And the mermaid was to the left of where we are going to use explosive, about 50 yards away and not much more. And uh, so we decided we'll have to tell her that uh, she'll have to move. And we got in the inflatable dinghy 
and motored over towards her. And we were quite excited, Bob and myself, because we could see this lovely blonde lady with lovely blonde hair coming down over the side of her of her shoulders, and she was completely naked. She must have been a, a nude sunbather on the rocks on this beautiful sunny day. And we were quite excited, of course, being young men, that we actually found a mermaid. And the closer we got, the more exciting we got, until we got so close that we realised that this mermaid was about 85 years old. And uh, poor lady, she was, she was such a dear, she was covered in wrinkles, um, and very brown, but I'm afraid uh, we had a bit of a, a a bit of a shock when we realised our mermaid turned out to be a granny mermaid. So we decided that we'd have to go close to her and get the message over for her to move. So we steamed it as close as we could. I remember she picked up a towel and wrapped herself up, and we said to her in the most polite manner, "I'm sorry to bother you, madam, but we are salvage divers." and we have to use explosives not far from you, and it will not be safe for you to stay here. So could you be kind enough to move away another 50 to 100 yards further to the to the west and uh, be safe from any possible uh, effects of explosive? She took it very well. I mean, she was laughing and thought it was all very funny. And, uh, of course, we were splitting our sides with laughter after we'd left her because we couldn't believe that uh, we found a granny mermaid. <laughs> so that was the, the mermaid, mermaid dive, which uh, turned out to be quite funny. So now we come into the use of the explosives, we melted back to Aquanaut, picked up some explosives, and then came in close again with the inflatable dinghy, switched the motor off, and just paddled in almost directly above where the metal, precious metal, semi-precious metal was located, the bronze and the copper. And the, the plan was that if we blew it um, um, without uh, trying to cover it, it would all fly into the air because the water was only seven to eight feet deep, maximum. So next to it, we found some big steel plates, which were obviously part of the ship that had been wrecked. So with great effort, because uh, it was such a weight, Bob and I planted the explosive underneath the metal. I forget how much he used, but we didn't use quite so much this time. The idea of blowing it free and, and releasing it all till we pick it up. And we dragged the, the metal sheet, I would say it was about six feet in diameter and the same length. And with a great effort, we dragged it by putting our feet on the on the seabed and dragging this big chunk of metal plate right over the top of the, of the semi-precious metal uh, with the view of containing the explosive. And then, of course, the idea was to, that we have to keep the metal plate in position. So we got boulders and picked up the heaviest boulders we could and rolled them on top of the, of the metal sheet. So there must have been five or six or more, maybe ten boulders of a good size, which we rolled with some other smaller rocks on top of the metal sheet to keep the explosive contained so it wouldn't blow or blow into the air because the water was so shallow. So we planted the explosive, fixed the fuse wire to the detonator and unwound it slowly back towards the inflatable dinghy, got in the dinghy and then paddled out back to Aquanaut this time in a safe distance away from the explosive 
and everybody was safely on board, we blew it. My goodness, another experience. It's difficult to explain this, but if you can imagine someone throwing a, a plate into the air and then it comes down and smashes, this is what happened. The boulders went up like cannonballs. The steel plate went spinning six to eight feet into the air and crashing down onto, onto, into the water again. It was such a massive explosion. And the, the rocks were like cannonballs going high up into the air. So obviously uh, we had contained it to some extent, but the blast blew the plate away like a spinning plate in the air. This huge spinning plate of metal. If anybody had been there, of course, it would have killed them. So we made sure that we were in safe distance away. So then, of course, to, to get the metal, we uh, paddled in and we had done a good job. We freed a lot of copper pipe and bronze fittings and valves. Uh, and uh, we managed to load the inflatable dinghy with all this scrap metal and then get back to the boat. So that was our first successful use of explosives. But uh, again, a learning curve because we again, we probably used too much explosive. But if we hadn't put that plate on top with the boulders, I don't know what would have happened. You had steel, copper pipe flying in all directions. But, uh, you know, we, we learned from that and it was a good idea. You all together, a successful day, an amusing one, a mermaid, explosives, and of course, successful salvage. I want to finish this episode with another uh, episode about uh, nature under the sea and uh, we were out towards Land's End one day and uh, still searching with our echo sounder paragraph to see what the, the terrain would find and we find another wreck and then suddenly in the distance I was only about less than a hundred yards from us we saw some what seemed like a lot of activity in the water and uh, suddenly these, they appeared these, they were killer whales and uh, they've been often spotted off Land's End many times by fishermen, but we decided uh, not to dive that day because uh, with killer whales around, uh, we thought we'd better not take any risks and certainly not use explosives. So uh, I never had the experience of diving in killer whales. Maybe I should have done, whether I'd have been safe or not, or anxious, I'll never know to this day. But they were about, and they would often come uh, up with the, 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 the current from the south and go up the English coast and they were quite commonly found off Land's End in the summertime. So in the next episode there's no fairness where, where pirates are concerned. Then I'll move away from explosives and talk about uh, the call out we had to help and assist the Penny Lifeboat on a rescue in Mounts Bay. <laughs>